It was 1994, years before destruction of the World Trade Center. The so-called Bojinka Project, to blow up a dozen planes in the air, was for a time the most twisted terrorist operation ever uncovered. The name Bojinka was adopted by Al-Qaeda mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his nephew Ramzi Youssef, a nonsense word first thought to mean Big Bang in Serbo-Croatian. The plan, according to the 9-11 Commission report, was to detonate liquid explosives on U.S. commercial jumbo jets over a two-day period. Terrorist operatives would board the planes in Asia and place bombs set to detonate over the Pacific en route to the United States. Muhammad's nephew even pulled off a successful test run on a Philippines airline flight headed for Tokyo. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Roads to 9-11 interview series with Adam Fitzgerald. Following on from our look at the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, we're going to pursue the mastermind of that attack, Ramzi Youssef, as he flees the United States to Pakistan and then the Philippines and masterminds Operation Bajinka. Adam will describe how this hijacking plot came together and then we'll discuss whether it was indeed the template for the later 9-11 attacks. We'll also compare this to Operation Northwoods, the US Air Force's plan to fake the shooting down of a passenger plane back in the 1960s to justify an invasion of Cuba. A lot of people who see 9-11 as being a conspiracy would think of Northwoods as being the template. And we'll see if that contradicts or rather complements the idea that Bajinka was. Now here's Adam picking up the narrative with Ramzi Youssef fleeing the United States. Immediately after the uh, World Trade Center bombing in 1993, Youssef fled to Pakistan and went into hiding for a couple of months. Uh, during the summer of that year, members of the Siti-e-Sahaba, uh, which is a revivalist Sunni political movement in Pakistan, uh, contacted Ramzi Youssef to assassinate uh, Prime Minister, the first female Prime Minister in any Arab country, Benazir Bhutto. Uh, Youssef had planned to use a makeshift bomb hide along the road where Bhutto lived. He was assisted by um, a former Afghan Mujahideen, Abdul Hakim Murad, uh, who was a close associate, um, and met Yusuf while attending Afghan training camps and taught Murad how to make bombs. The plan um, failed when they scouted the area and found too much security and police covering the residence. Uh, the bomb that they, they had in place, which was located in the back of the vehicle, had prematurely detonated the car. Um, this caused severe damage to Yusuf's uh, right eye and his hand, and he was rushed to a hospital outside Lahore, Pakistan. Um, in June 1994, after Yusuf recovered from his wounds, he went to um, Mahad Iran, with the shrine of Ali al-Ridaya, the eighth imam of Shia Muslims, is located. Um, Yusuf had constructed an impactful bomb, which was equivalent to 10 pounds of uh, TNT. It was later reported that members of the Iraqi-backed uh, People's Mujahideen of Iran, the MEC organization, which is a socialist Iranian movement, um, and allied with Saudi Arabia and Israel, had placed the bomb at the shrine at 2 p.m., in which it exploded at 2.26 p.m., uh, while shrine members were celebrating Ashura, the uh, holiest day of Shia Islam. The bomb detonated, was 26 people killed in approximately um, 100 were injured. This would be Yusuf's largest casualty rate and resoundingly successful terrorist act. Um, according to terrorist analysts, Yusuf was suspecting of having uh, connections with the MECA organization because of his Iraqi background. 
Um, after the shrine bombing, Yusuf had felt pretty confident and left for Singapore in the fall of 1994 with another Afghan Mujahideen fighter named Wali Khan Amin Shah, um, who fought against the Soviets in the early 1980s. The two men then obtained uh, Philippine visas and made their way to Manila, Philippines in October 1994, where they met with Mohammed Jamal Khalifa, who was a former Afghan Mujahideen and a brother-in-law to Assam Bin Laden. While it was here, it was asserted that um, uh, Terry Nichols, who was involved with the Oklahoma bombing, um, because his wife was Filipino. Uh, he went and uh, visited um, his wife's family. It was asserted here by an inside informant within the Abu Sayyaf organization that Terry Nichols, who was nicknamed the farmer, um, had met with Ramsey Yusuf and learned how to, how to bomb, build a bomb out of urea nitrate, which is what was used in the Oklahoma City bomb. Um, it was here that plans for the largest terrorist operation in human history came to be born, which was called Old Plan Pajinka, or commonly known as the Pajinka Plot. Pajinka is similar to the Russian word Ozinka, P-O-Z-H-I-N-K-A, which is a short term for God, um, mistakenly known as a Croatian term. But the plan was operated under Ramzi Yusuf, along with his uncle, Sheikh Mohammed, or, or short, short ASM, who will later have ramifications in the years to come. Mohammed has residency in the Philippines for the year while dating uh, numerous women along with Yusuf at nightclub. Um, incidentally, these women will become important because they will be so enamored with the two men that they open bank accounts in their name while funding for the Bajinka plot came from. Um, Saudi and Pakistan clients, along with agents within uh, numerous terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda, Abu Sayyaf, the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, contacts that Mohammed Jamal Khalifa had with, within his U.S. mosques in the United States, which are associated with uh, major corporations as well. Um, these accounts are associated over the next couple of months by use of the KSM, and it was during Eight months of 1994 that Yusuf and KSM had begun um, testing for airport security. They would use um, contact, eye contact solution bottles filled with nitroglycerin. And they would use um, a lot of jewelry to confuse security at airports because Ramsey Yusuf would tape a metal rod underneath uh, his arch of his foot to act as a detonator for these bombs. And so when they saw Security, when they would go through the security detail and they would check with the hand wave, they would, they would make them take off their um, the, the jewelry. But they had, at the time, they were not told to take off their, their shoes yet at that point. Um, on December 8, 1994, Yusuf would take residency at the Dornia Josefa Apartments under the alias um, Awaita Haddad in Manila, in the Manila, Philippines. Um, later on, Abdul Hakim Murad would later live in the same apartment with Yusuf. It was here that the Pajinka um, plot would be composed of three distinct uh, events. One, the assassination of U.S. President Bill Clinton, which many areas of opportunity would quickly become distinguished due to the massive security detail. Clinton was to visit the Philippines on November 12, 1994, but it came too difficult to assassinate him. The alternative was then to have Pope John Paul II assassinated instead. And Yusuf, 
is to have dressed in a priest outfit and plant a bomb hidden in a suitcase or a large bag and place it along the book route. The second point of this operation was plant uh, 11 timing mechanisms aboard United States bound airliners, which had stopovers scattered throughout East Asia and Southeast Asia. The bombs would then be planted inside the life jackets underneath the seats. It would all then explode uh, while advancing over the Pacific Ocean two minutes uh, minute, uh, apart from each other. And it would all explode and have the debris land into the Pacific Ocean where no proper investigation would be held. The approximate kill count simulated was at least 5,000 people to be killed. The third point of the Jacob Bob was to hijack a plane and to have it piloted to crash into the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Abdul Hakim Murad had been um, attending um, a series of flight schools in Dubai, North Emirates, New York, and in North Carolina, and even in Texas. Um, he would later reiterate this idea of crashing a plane into an American target to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which is where KSM had gotten the idea for 9-11 and manipulated the uh, bot into the attacks in 2001, which I'll get into later when you talk about it. The Mark II, uh, or as they were called, microbombs, which were Casio digital watches, um, watches would act as timers, and the nitroglycerin would be inside the contact lenses and be used as explosives. The first test for the Vajinkapod was to place a bomb in a, Maniva, um, a movie theater in the Manila, Philippines. The bomb worked. It didn't kill anyone, but that was not the point, as the plan was simply have the detonation successful. The next plan was to enter an airport undetected and place the timing mechanism on board a flight. Yusef himself would test his creation. On December 11, 1994, Yusef entered Manila International Airport and gained a boarding pass for Philippines Airlines Flight 434, which had a stopover to Cebu International, which had a, a final destination for Narita, Narita International Airport to Japan. Yusef had boarded the flight, which took off at 5.35 a.m. Yusuf then entered the laboratory with his toiletry bag in hand, took off his shoes, to get out the batteries, the wiring, the sparks was hidden in the shield of his shoe. Yusuf then modified the castle to the watch, assembled the bomb, which set the set at four hours later where he set the timer. When Yusuf returned to his seat, he actually asked the flight attendant for permission to move to seat 26K, and it was granted permission to use the solution that want to have a better view outside. He tucked the device in the light vest uh, pocket underneath the seat. When the airplane landed in Cebu, he departed the plane. He caught a return flight back to Manila. The plane then took off its destination for um, Tokyo at, at 8.38 a.m. with 236 passengers on board. Um, one of those passengers was Haruki Kagami, 24-year-old uh, Japanese businessman. He would be placed at 26K. The seat the bomb was there. And at 11.43 a.m., the device detonates and kills Ikigami instantly. Um, however, the bomb was mistakenly placed just two seats in front of where the fuel tanks were built underneath. And the flight attendants tried to pull um, Ikigami's body out of the hole, 
saw that most of the lower half of his body below the waist was gone. Kagami's body had to absorb most of the blast. Survive, uh, the plane survived uh, from being uh, imploded. Uh, so the flight crew miraculously lands the plane and the remaining souls on board managed to survive. Yusef immediately went back to the Yosef apartment to began preparing for the final stages of the Pajinka plot. And on the morning hours of January 6th, um, while preparing to make the bomb for the final leg of the plan, Murad had began mixing chemicals. This is one assertion. Um, well, just there's one assertion where he began mixing chemicals, spilled into the sink full of water, which caused an inexplicably bad reaction. The room began to fill up with this acrid, thin black smoke, which burnt out of the room. There was another assertion that the Philippine National Police had infiltrated this group within the particular plot, knew about the plot, and then um, somehow got into the room and planted an explosive device which caused a small explosion in the room when Murad and Yusuf had to flee. Um, whether you want to believe either assertion. Okay, um, it, it might just be worth then just me asking about the, the kind of context in the Philippines which Yusuf has slotted into. It's not that they're like the only half dozen Islamist terrorists operating in the Philippines. There is an active Islamist separatist movement going on there and questions about the state's infiltration of it and then what the state was doing infiltrating it, was it just keeping an eye on it, or was it using it to perpetuate terror in a kind of gladio false flag style operation? Um, so that, that's the, is that, what, what would you say about the context in, in the Philippines at the time? Well, I would, I would say take it with a grain of salt because the information that we all, uh, the general consensus, the public is aware of is a Murad's testimony, which you have to take with a grain of salt too because he was actually tortured. So much like with KSM in 9-11, um, I, I would not dismiss it. But I wouldn't fully divulge uh, all your eggs in one desk. Hmm. So I would say take both scenarios and uh, leave it where it is at. It seems to me, Adam, that in contrast to when we were looking at the 93 bombing, I came away from that feeling like you could have a good sense of what went on there and that essentially the right people ultimately went to jail for it in terms of the blind sheikh omar abdul rachman and the rest of them even if they got outside help they were involved in the plot and you could feel comfortable with that because there was imad salem uh, the working as the fbi informant infiltrating the group um the operations were recorded there were there was uh, the, the base where the bomb was built was um wiretapped etc so the the, the memory court confessing uh, Imad Salem was careful not to entrap them so and of course all the all the evidence linking um the the rental truck to the bombers themselves now talking about Ramzi Youssef the whole thing feels like it's much more uncertain okay like with every event of Ramzi Youssef after he leaves New York you've got like two or three different versions of what might have happened. And it's what we know comes from testimony that may have been extracted from torture. It comes from laptops that may have been interfered with, etc. So does that seem accurate to you that we're on, we're on shakier ground describing who these people are and what they are up to at this point in the story? Yeah, that's absolutely feasible. In fact, I would think that's very much 
could happen, especially when you have the intelligence services such as the CIA, um, the Pakistan ISI, Mossad, uh, who do um, extensive uh, investigations into these um, Islamic militant groups. And I think a lot of background after 93 with Ramzi Yusuf is a lot of uncertainty, especially with Project Ajinka. Because of the information that we're fed with the official account, and now is, is coming from Murad's testimony itself. And Murad's testimony, like I said before, comes from under great duress. He's actually tortured horribly, he's actually beaten tree logs, um, he's given sleep deprivation over the next course of the week. So much in the way of what um, the uh, Islamist uh, terrorist groups uh, that were involved with 9-11, such as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Hambali, Edwin Isamudin, um, these people, Ali Abdulaziz, um, all these people who endured um, even greater uh, torture um, than, say, Abdulatim Murad, and for longer extended periods of time, months, even years. So we have to take what we say with an extreme grain of salt. And we have to also look at the other uh, forms of information that come from external agencies as well, not within the um, US uh, coalition internal services. Um, when it comes to Ramzi Yusuf and Murad, I'll just explain in short order uh, when they fled the premises and he watched the, the police and fire department investigate the matter. Yusuf had left his laptop behind in the room. Now, whether you want to believe that the laptop was interfered with um, by the CIA or the Mossad or whatever agency, um, like I said, take the assault. He actually orders Murad remarkably to go back and retrieve the laptop. And incredibly, ludicrously, Murad did. And he made it halfway up the steps and it was accosted right away by the, um, the Philippine National Police who you know, saw the room littered with bomb-making material, um, also Catholic outfits complete with crosses and Bibles. And Murad actually flees from the premises, but he falls down running away, he's actually captured. And Yusuf actually sees this from a distance and he manages to flee, seen unnoticed and flies back to Pakistan. Meanwhile, the um, Philippine National Police partially interrogates Hakim Murad for, uh, for days, and it was broken uh, by lead investigator Rodolfo Mendoza, who orders everybody to leave the room and gives Murad um, a hamburger. And it was just this gesture. Murad then began to have a, um, an open, more productive dialogue. And it was here that Murad began evolving information regarding the Pajinka plot and the idea of having planes hijacked in the United States and having them crash into selected targets. Murad um, mentioned that the um, that, it, that he had a pilot training inside the United States and 10 other operatives are being trained inside the U.S. And Mendoza was careful not to lose Mendoza, uh, Murad's silence and began addressing Murad that his family back home in Pakistan should not be made to suffer for his actions. And Murad agrees and, and reiterates something which was kept total secrecy even to many of the operatives involved with the plot. And that was a second wave um, in the operation to have suicide hijackers involved. 
Mendoza later states in an interview that this is the formal training going on for suicide bombers. He said that there were other Middle Eastern pilots training in the United States. And he discussed the name and the flight training schools they went to. And he gives this information to the FBI, and the FBI um, ultimately states that they do nothing with it. Um, Murad uh, actually states this in an interview, which is then um, uh, put on the Associated Press, which you can find on YouTube, actually, itself. Murad then states that the targets, such as nuclear facilities, Pentagon, say, Langley, Sears Tower, along with the World Trade Center, were like potential targets. Um, and again, he says he relates, he reiterates the target potential for the FBI, and the FBI does not provided to him from the interview with Murad in transfers. Murad then reports to the United States. He later is convicted on seven counts of conspiring and attempting to bomb uh, 12 planes. Um, um, he's actually serving his, uh, 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 his sentence at a maximum security prison in uh, Marion, Illinois, where John Gotti wants to house. His testimony uh, also would lead to the capture of Ramsey Yusuf in the guest house in uh, Islamabad, uh, Islamabad, Pakistan, um, along with the um, information provided by one uh, Istaki Parker, who is an associate of Ramsey Yusuf, and a militant was helping um, Ramsey Yusuf uh, plan for a, a future bombing, a future plane. And he actually walked into a, um, um, a Pakistan ISI um, oh, I'm sorry, he, he walked into an FBI um, guest house and he actually reiterates the information. Um, meanwhile, there was uh, uh, always a, a saturation uh, of wanted posters that were, uh, that came in the form of matchbooks um, that were dropped by uh, the FBI in planes. Um, there was a $2 million bounty for use as arrest and it had his picture, Ramsey used picture on these matchbooks and they would be placed all around Pakistan and the FBI um, found out that Pakistan was one of the leading nations for cigarette smoking. That's the reason why they put it on these matchbooks. It's an ingenious idea. Um, Yusuf is actually captured by the Pakistan ISI and the um, U.S. Diplomatic and Security Services. Is that and, the State Department's security? Yeah, so, that's the State yeah. Department Security Services. Um, and they placed uh, Yusuf under arrest and they, they actually take a picture of him. And you can see this is find on uh, Google YouTube or uh, Google images, you see Yusuf, he's actually wearing a, um, a white t-shirt, his hair is messed up. And because one of the uh, security services actually thought it'd be a great idea to take a picture of him right away. And um, he's actually in uh, like a sleeping mode, almost like they did with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, that's the picture this, that's quite I, common of Ramsey Yusuf. He does look very strange, let's say. Because right, he actually... Actually, he's not. He's actually rousted from sleep, and he was actually surprised when he got caught. And you can see, like, his one eye is, is yeah. swooped over. Yeah. So, but that's what they did with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and when they arrested him in Pakistan, they aroused him. They woke him up, and they actually made him shave his beard. They had a little mustache, like this little Hitler mustache. And he, he was actually roused from sleep as well. Um, Yusuf would actually be um, on a plane heading over Manhattan, and it was somewhere asserted here. And take this with a grain of salt, if you will. This is coming from the FBI. And the FBI is actually seated along the helicopter. is being tried in New York. And they said uh, something to the, to the effect where he looked down and he sees the World Trade Center. And the FBI has asserted that 
been, you know, they're still standing. And Yusuf said, and no in certain terms, if I, you know, if I had enough money, it wouldn't be. And there's also another quote that says that not for law. So like I said, take with a grain of salt because it's coming from one agent within the FBI on the plane. Um, meanwhile, Yusuf would be tried in Manhattan and sentenced to life without parole. And he's serving his sentence in solitary, complete solitary confinement. And he's currently in prison at the uh, Supermax ADX in Flores, Colorado. And that's where he is currently. So that's uh, that for the particular plot. Okay, and the key person being then Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is not arrested at this time. No, he, he actually he actually flees um, um, the Philippines and goes into um, Afghanistan. This is where the operation for 9-11 happened. Right. So I hope. guess next time we're, we're going to pick up on what Osama bin Laden has been up to to this point That's in the 90s and Azhar and they meet up with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at some point, but Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is seen as being the like intellectual architect of the 9-11 plot then, right? Correct. It's coming out of Bajinka. That's correct. Um, actually, what we'll pick up next is where um, Assam Bilan leaves Sudan. He goes to Afghanistan, and it's there he meets with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed relates to him the idea to use uh, hijacked planes as missiles or as the targets themselves, crash them into the uh, um, high-profile American target. Just, again, regarding on how we know that, um, I've read an interview with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or an abridged version of an interview, I think um, originally recorded by someone from Al Jazeera in 2002, prior to his capture, where he himself then talked about being the, uh, the coordinator Right. of the attacks right which is obviously prior to his um arrest and everything from that moment on is more dubious because he's waterboarded like how many times 180 times or something ridiculous it's it's 178. right yeah so obviously anything he says after his arrest is well make of that right. one you know. exactly right. talk about being the the architect of these attacks the the, right. the, the only true unfettered information that we get that links him to 9-11 is, is exactly with the interview he holds with Ramzi bin Shabib to Yosri Fuda of Al Jazeera. And, um, and the only thing that links that is the audio, because he actually does take video of them. But police Sheikh Mohammed acts for the video so they can blur their faces yeah. so that they can't be caught by, of course, everyone in the world that's trying to look for them 9-11 attacks. However, According to Yosri Fuda, and in documentaries, however, it's in Arabic, there's a part of it that's in French and English, and I have it, but he has the audio of Ramzi bin Shabib, and the audio states that uh, the idea for 9-11 did come from uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which he has Ramzi bin Shabib be a part of, because he actually can't be a pilot because he can't get a visa inside the United States, so now he's the go between the pilots and the contact in Germany uh, with uh, Hayden Damar, other um, external agencies as well, that funnels the money inside the United States, and he's not alone. We have other Saudi nationals that are involved that are funneling money from elsewhere as well. But the, besides the uh, testimony of Sheikh Mohammed that came from Portugal, I would throw that all into the wind because you can't use that information uh, lawfully anyway in a court of law because 
it's actually complicated. So the only, the only um, strand of linkage between Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and 9-11 is from Yosri Fudo himself. And wow, Yosri wow. Fudo is actually an exceptional journalist. I, I hear from certain people that, oh, we really can't go by him. He's actually a really respectable journalist. Whether he lied about the whole thing, um, I would suggest that that's taken that uh, um, foolishly because the BBC and Al Jazeera actually are, well, Al Jazeera I would think is a reputable uh, um, uh, news agency. And you would have to say that they were all behind it because he actually vouched for his, his, um, his uh, travel to Pakistan. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it, it does feel strange that it comes down to like this one interview because it's not just a legal technicality that you can't take right. anything he said under torture. It's like just logically you can't take anything he said under torture because you'd, you'd say anything, you know, if you were... Right. I mean, I'm, I, I would tell you that I was involved with 9-11. Yeah, exactly, no? exactly, yeah. Right. I mean, um, look, so, at this point, if, if, look, if waterboarding actually works, you wouldn't need to use it 170 times. I mean, you know, three times, this guy's ready to tell you his mother is involved. 170 times, uh, what I believe is what happens is this. They actually waterboard him that many times so he can admit the crimes that he didn't participate in. Hmm. And that's what I believe, because that list is long. So you could look at all the uh, operations that he's involved, and it's like ludicrous. He's involved with many army campaigns organizations around the world. And yeah, that, I, that feeds Sure. Yeah. Um, so Bajinka is often mentioned in the context of um, Condoleezza Rice and George Bush saying after the attacks, I don't think anyone could have envisioned hijacking airplanes and flying them into buildings. That's right. right. So, right. Yeah, because they had this information, which was reported to them by Rodolfo Mendoza, who gives the, the documents over to the FBI. The FBI, and he states publicly that the FBI did nothing with it. And they never followed up with Mendoza afterwards. So I don't want to, I don't believe the idea that the FBI or the State Department or the intelligence services overall had no idea that these militants were willing to use planes as weapons, but they knew as far back as 1995. So they knew, and it wasn't just the particular part in general, they knew that um, Islamic militants would use the planes, especially in, in the cases of the late 1980s when the Abu Nadalu organization involved in hijacking planes and they were bombing the terminal, causing um, a terrorist action within Israel, within France, within Italy. And that's where the godfather of true external um, unconventional methods came from, the Abu Nadal. So. Right, yeah. And there was the, um, the Algerian groups that high, were looking to fly a plane into the Eiffel Tower. That's correct. I believe is the first um, attempt of that nature to put explosives on a plane, fill it full of fuel and crash it into a tall building. That's correct. That's, that's the first initial point of using a plane as the weapon. In fact, that was the plane, um, it was called Air France Flight 8879, 8869. I could be wrong about 8879 or 8869. But Algerian uh, Islamic group of Algeria stormed the plane. They were going to refuel the plane, have it crashed into the... Um, um, the, uh, the Eiffel Tower itself. So even, and that was, you know, we're talking about the early 1990s, the early, uh, late 1980s, where they were going to use planes as means of the weapon itself instead of having bombs in the plane itself, which was uh, later into, well, I mean, the security service would be on the lookout for bombs because now with Ramsey Yusuf. So instead, now the idea was to use the plane as the weapon itself. 
Right. They knew this information. I mean, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the Defense Intelligence, you name it, everyone knew that these Islamic militants were going to use the planes as weapons. And that information was then reported to the State Department. So when Condoleezza, when you bring up Condoleezza Rice, he actually lied right in front of the 9 11 Commission said, well, we had no idea we were going to use planes as weapons. They knew as far, I mean, they had information in their hands as far back as 95. If you want to use that information, the FBI had the information from who? The Philippine National Police. Okay. Right there. And as you mentioned last time, people who see 9-11 as an Islamic plot might look to Bajinka as the template, the thing it grew out of, okay? Right. People who see it as a U.S. government conspiracy look to Operation Northwoods as being right. the thing it grew out of. Now, those two things aren't entirely mutually exclusive, right? In the with Northwoods, it was very much the U.S. Air Force directing the operation and having a pretend passage and plane shot down and all the rest. So it was very much an operation that was coming from, um, it was not an operation being orchestrated from an outside source and allowed to happen. Okay, but it, that, it doesn't mean that, well, maybe they found it more convenient along the way to let an external group do the legwork, if you like, and set the whole thing up and then allow it to happen as opposed to, um, you know, pretending to hijack planes themselves and to have shoot downs and these kind of things because exactly how the air force would have gotten away with northwoods is it wasn't determined that they would have done right because it, it was pretty elaborate in what they were attempting to do there right it, it was actually a, a construct strictly made by the state department and neoconservatives involved and um what they wanted to do was uh use like um uh, i think it was a plane full of american civilians and have it shot down or uh, somehow exploded that they were going to fake the civilians right but i think they were going to shoot up some actual cubans in florida but they were going to essentially I, okay that, that's actually right. That, right, right right so yeah, that a, actually is right I, I, not I, clear they would have gotten away with doing that had they actually gone ahead of it right that no one would have figured out that actually these people don't exist and the whole thing is a farce what what, what the point i'm getting at really is that we're describing it as um you know we're talking about the template of 9-11 being northwards um, and, and these two different views of 9-11 was an Islamic plot, 9-11 was a CIA plot or a US military plot, right? But they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like they, no, not, not at all, because one's a military operation. The other one is an operation created, constructed by militants and actually manipulated by the intelligence services of Israel and the United States. And that's what I think 9-11 is. I think 9-11 was actually originally, like I agree with Michael Collins Piper, who is a late author of Judas Goats uh, and, and, um, and a researcher in the events of 9-11 and um, the assassination. And um, we both agree that I think that 9-11 itself was an Islamist plot, but then made a court win by the intelligence services of the NSA, the CIA, and Mossad, and manipulated or added to it, where they had a little bit of physicality into it, and then let it transpire. I think that's the most plausible scenario. Whereas Northwood was strictly just a military uh, Pentagon operation uh, assisted by or, or constructed by as well with the neoconservative movement. Um, so they're, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive at all. And I think that's the problem with um, many truthers in the truth movement is that they mistakenly believe that 9-11 is strictly 
um, a United States construction or an Israeli construction itself, but it's not, actually. There's no evidence to suggest that whatsoever. Um, so that's what I, I would suggest uh, 9-11. Okay, so we'll, we'll continue to examine over the coming episodes the kind of intelligence, quote-unquote, failures that would allow such an event to happen. Well, first of all, we'll look at the embassy bombings and the bombing of the USS Cole right up until then, 9-11 itself. And then we'll probably question that kind of gray area that exists, that where is exactly the line between allow it to happen, make it happen, you know, with, um, with the plot itself. So I think next time we'll, we'll pick up with what Osama bin Laden has been up to for the 90s so far, post the Afghan war. And... The embassy bombings? I think that's the place to go? Yes. Yeah. Great. Embassy bombings would be nice. Okay. Anything more on this topic? Adam? Oh, that, that, that'd be it. Great. Looking forward to next time. Thank you. Thank you for having me.